The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Prosecutors can also make the argument that the Constitution also confers no power to the president to defraud the United States, for that matter or to conspire against the voting rights of citizens. In fact, again, it specifically entrusts electoral vote counting matters to a different branch of government. So Trump's actions may not be in the Article 2 domain, but we're not getting there. Prosecutors aren't getting there. They're talking about whether the clear statement rule would apply here. And it need not matter because all of Trump's alleged actions in the indictment, prosecutors may argue, is reserved either for another branch of government or it falls squarely within this idea of high crimes and misdemeanors. And so we don't even have to reach the question of presidential immunity. I'm Tyler McBrien, Managing Editor of Lawfare, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, September 18th, 2023. Sometime soon, former President Donald Trump is expected to file a motion in U.S. District Judge Tanya Chutkin's courtroom to dismiss the January 6th case against him based on some theory of presidential immunity. In a recent piece for Lawfare, our very own legal fellow Seraphine Danani and Editor-in-Chief Benjamin Wittes write, The bottom line is that this defense is a bit of a moonshot for Trump, but it's not a crazy moonshot. I sat down with Seraphine and Ben to talk through their article, The Trump Defense Part 2, The Presidential Immunity Gambit. We discussed the general contours of the defense's argument and strategy, the prosecution's likely counterarguments, and all the murkiness and unknowns in between. We also talked about how, Even if Judge Chutkin does not accept Trump's immunity defense, and even if the appellate courts ultimately affirm her judgment on that score, the immunity defense could still be useful to the former president. It's the Lawfare Podcast, September 18th, Trump's Presidential Immunity Defense, with Seraphine Danani and Benjamin Wittes. Seraphine, I'd love to start with you. Uh, You mentioned the piece that, that you both expect former President Trump to file a motion in Judge Tanya Chutkin's courtroom to dismiss the Jan 6 case against him. So first, can you just tell us uh, on what grounds you expect him to file a motion and, and how do we know? Sure. So we expect him to file a motion on presidential immunity grounds. And the way we know this is that John Loro has explicitly said so. He said so both on Sunday morning talk shows and he said so on the August 26th status conference hearing before Judge Chetkin. And before we get into the presidential immunity argument at hand, Ben, I was hoping you could remind the listeners about some of Trump's other likely defenses, uh, as teased by by Loro, uh, that you may have spoken about in part one. And also, if you could, you know, explain a bit about why you gave the presidential immunity defense its own special treatment in part two. Right. So Loro has been uh, outspoken. Uh, on the Sunday talk shows and in court about what he imagines the defense to be. 
this is you know not atypical of uh, defense lawyers in very high profile cases to kind of you know tease the defense and the press um but the uh, you know, the other defenses that he talked about, which we dealt with in the first article in uh, that we wrote, were, are all defenses that are more likely to be jury defenses. That is, defenses that you're going to use to try to raise reasonable doubt in the minds of the jury. They have to do with things like he was just engaged in free speech he was uh he earnestly believed what he was doing that 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 the election had been stolen he wasn't lying um that he was uh proceeding on advice of counsel that sort of things and these are arguments that except at the margins are not going to work as matters of law but the defense clearly hopes that they will uh, raise reasonable doubt in the minds of the jury. By contrast, this argument, the argument that the president is immune from, the former president is immune from criminal prosecution for the matters that Jack Smith has indicted him, this is a pure, pretty pure question of law. And uh, it is one that will not persuade a jury because it either exists, this presidential immunity, in which case the matter won't go to a jury. It'll be decided as a matter of law by the judge, or it doesn't exist, in which case you're not going to plead it to a jury. So it seemed different in quality and in, in, in nature from the other defenses and so we kind of broke it out and thought we would deal with it separately. And so we dealt with the first set of, of defenses in the first piece, partly because they all feed on each other, as we argue in the piece. And in this one, and they're all questions, ultimately quest jury questions of fact, here this is um, a kind of, a, it's, it's not a defense that depends on the others, and it's a question of law. So we dealt with it on its own. It's also a complicated set of issues that warranted a, a more lengthy discussion. Great. So, so we'll dispatch, I think, with those other prongs of the defense strategy, the jury-related prongs, and, and just focus on the presidential immunity argument, which Lauro has admittedly, I think, described in public a bit less than the other prongs. But Ben, as you mentioned, nonetheless, it's it's a question of law. So I think that that formed the basis of the article. Seraphine, could you now just lay out for us the general contours of the argument as you interpret it? Sure. So I think there are probably two ways that Laura will argue this. The first is he'll probably cite the case in point for the defense. The case in point here for the defense is the case of Nixon versus Fitzgerald. And I think that's probably a case that's going to feature prominently in a defense's motion. In that case, a federal officer sued President Nixon because, according to the officer, he testified in Congress about defense's spending and Nixon fired him as a retaliatory measure. The Supreme Court in that case held that a former president has absolute immunity for civil damages if the conduct that, that's being alleged is within the outer perimeter of the president's Article II powers. So defense is probably going to argue that that privilege of immunity 
should extend to criminal matters as well, because it would only make sense. It would, if you think about it, if the president is immune for conduct in a civil context, but that he can be charged for the conduct in a criminal context, it would make immunity in the civil context meaningless. There's also a separation of powers argument that I suspect Laura is going to go down, which is that Congress cannot criminalize the conduct of the presidency when that conduct is within the outer perimeter of his Article II powers. Putting it another way, that conduct would be immune from criminal prosecution. So I think listeners might feel like this, this argument sounds familiar, and it should because it's a similar argument that Mark Meadows made in the Fulton County case, but he spoke about it in the supremacy clause context, basically saying that the state of Georgia cannot criminalize the conduct of the federal presidency. So he, as Mark Meadows, who's working in the executive branch, and you know even Trump for that matter, um, they were acting within the four corners of their federal offices, and so they're immune from state charges. That is what I suspect Laura will probably do, go down these two routes, both uh, Nixon v. Fitzgerald, extending the civil uh, immunity um, argument to the, to the criminal side, and also stating that uh, there's a separation of powers argument not dissimilar from the supremacy clause context. And Ben, I want to go over to you. Uh, first, if you'd like to add anything to those two uh, potential uh, routes of, of defense um, of Nixon to be Fitzgerald and then the sort of similar supremacy clause argument. And then also, I'm curious how compelling you find both of these arguments. All right. So the, the, the first question is easy. Those are the areas that are open to him to argue, I think. They're, the question of how compelling it is is difficult because the idea that there is some presidential immunity uh, is intuitive, but entirely doctrinally vapid, empty. So, you know, the, the Supreme Court has said that there is immunity in the civil context. That's Fitzgerald. It has never said that there is immunity in the criminal context for, for a president. And uh, by the way, the Constitution itself explicitly contemplates the prosecution of a former president for matters that give rise to impeachments. So you'll recall that in the impeachment judgment clause, the Constitution says that, you know, judgment in an impeachment can't extend further than removal from office and disqualification. But the former office holder, including a president, shall be liable to prosecution afterwards in the normal course of law. So the Constitution does seem to contemplate something other than immunity for former presidents. Uh, that said, so no lesser a figure than Byron White, who was uh, Justice Byron White was the lead dissenter in Fitzgerald, noted that the logic of Fitzgerald would seem to render the criminal law not applicable to the president. And so there is a logic to this. The question, I think, is not whether there is some immunity for the president, but how far that immunity extends. And we don't know the answer to this question because no president has ever been charged with a crime before for conduct 
related to his service in office or otherwise, by the way. And so there's never really been occasion to test it. I think there, for reasons we can go into, I think there is some substantial reason to believe that uh, the courts would find some degree of presidential immunity. I doubt very much whether it will be even these courts robust enough to immunize uh, President Trump from these charges for reasons that we can go into, if you like. Sure. Yeah, let's go into it. Um, I think it's it may be f- fair to characterize this level of immunity that the defense is arguing for, as uh, you call in your piece, um, absolute presidential immunity. Uh, but I'm curious, you know, your thoughts on on what you just mentioned of, of what degree of immunity the courts would find and, and why you think so. So let's start with the uh, supremacy clause immunity question where there's some doctrine that we can draw on, right? And in the supremacy clause context, let's say, you know, that President Trump were indicted by the state of Georgia for having given a state of the union address. There's some Georgia statute that says nobody shall go give a State of the Union address, and the president violates that statute by going up to Congress to give a State of the Union address. Everybody agrees what the doctrine is, which is that the president is acting within his federal constitutional role. Georgia is not allowed to criminalize the conduct of federal the federal government. So Trump would be immune from that prosecution under the under the doctrine of of supremacy clause immunity. So I think it's reasonable to say that there's something like that operating based on the separation of powers at the federal level. That is, just as the state of Georgia cannot make it illegal to be president of the United States and to act as president of the United States, Neither can Congress. One can't do it because of the separation of powers. The other can't do it because of the supremacy clause. But in both cases, you know, the Article 2 of the Constitution says what the president gets to do. And it says he gets to give us, shall give Congress information on the State of the Union. So if you were to criminalize that or you were to criminalize, to take a real example, Um, or you were to make it illegal to remove certain people from office, right? The Tenure in Office Act, that would be unconstitutional. And the president could do it anyway. And if that happened to be a criminal law, you would not be prosecutable as president for doing it. That's at least what I think the right answer is. So there's going to be some immunity that finds its roots in the fact that it's unconstitutional for Congress to make criminal the conduct of the presidency. The problem for Trump is that this indictment does not merely, does not allege that he was doing the routine business of the presidency, right? It alleges that he was doing all kinds of things that are beyond the Article II powers of the presidency. And so for Trump to prevail on this motion, he would have to show the court or, or, or convince the court that the immunity that the president gets is broader than simply 
the immunity for engaging in Article II authorized activity, that it somehow extends to, you know, shooting somebody on Fifth Avenue, right? Or trying to overturn an election, right? Pressuring the vice president, pressuring state officials, all these activities that there's no obvious Article II basis for. And so I think the question that this motion will present when we see it is, first of all, how is Trump going to argue that this stuff that Article II of the Constitution does not authorize the president to do is nonetheless subject to this absolute immunity? And number two, how will the Justice Department, the special counsel's office, respond and distinguish between activity that is protected and activity that isn't protected. And because this whole area is entirely doctrinally empty, it's all vaporware at this point, uh, we're sort of in a guessing game as to what Trump is going to argue, what the Justice Department argues, and what the courts are ultimately going to hold. Ben has just begun to take us down the road of, I think, the defense's logic. Um, some of those arguments, uh, though, may have muddied the waters a bit at the end of, of the unknown. Uh, so, Seraphine, I wonder if you could grab the wheel, turn the car around and take us down perhaps the prosecution's logic. W- what's the counter argument here? What do you think um, the prosecution will say? Sure. And I think Ben has hinted at a few of them. The idea is pretty intuitive to draw a parallel between the separation of powers argument to the supremacy clause argument. But the problem is that the doctrine doesn't exist. And so we don't really know what the perimeters are when it's President Trump claiming that there is a separation of powers issue here and he should be immune. Um, No former president has been charged with a crime such as this while he was in office. And so we're dealing with something that's pretty new territory. It's also probably important to mention that the conduct alleged in the indictment is, if, if Trump is arguing that it's the outer perimeter of his official duties, then that's an exceptionally capacious read of his Article II duties. He pressured state and federal officials to violate their oaths of office. He alleged to have exploited a riot to try to get Congress to stop their electoral count. He uh, encouraged Vice President Pence to pause the Electoral College vote. And so it's really hard to see these actions within the confines of his Article II authority, and even, for that matter, on the outer perimeter of his Article II duties. And you also bring up another case in your piece of um, Blasting Game, which is a civil suit. I wonder if you could speak a bit about how this may relate to the Jan 6 case in, in Judge Chutkin's courtroom. So the Blasting Game case is a civil case that is that came before Judge Mehta in the D.C. District Court. And Judge Mehta was not very sympathetic to this presidential immunity argument that Trump's attorneys laid out in the civil context. Much of the facts are similar, and the conduct alleged in the civil context is not dissimilar from the conduct that's alleged in the indictment in this criminal context. And in the Blasting Game case, Trump argued that his tweets leading up to January 6th, the speech that he gave at the ellipse, and also his failure to act once the Capitol was breached, 
fell into two presidential functions. The first function, he argues, is his Article II duty to take care that the laws be faithfully executed. That's the take care clause. And the second function is that he was just speaking on matters of public concern, and that's within his uh, presidential function. U.S. District Judge Mehta wasn't buying it, in fact, said that the Fitzgerald standard that the president has absolute immunity in civil cases doesn't apply to the Trump context. And here's why. He says that President Trump cited no constitutional or federal statute that grants or vests the president with any power or duty with respect to certifying the Electoral College vote. So the, the reason that is, according to Judge Smith, is because there is no authority that vests the president with that power. The president also does not have the authority to direct a non-executive branch official to act in a certain way in furtherance of the president taking care that he faithfully execute the laws. And what Judge Mehta is referring to here is Donald Trump directing Vice President Pence to pause the electoral count. Mehta goes on to say that Vice President Pence and was acting as a president of the Senate. He and members of Congress had a constitutional and statutory duty to carry out the certification. Their acts were specific to the legislative branch of government and that the executive branch had no business, should not have any had any control to interfere with, with the acts of the legislative branch. And then Trump's second argument, this point about speaking on matters of public concern, again, Judge Mehta is not convinced. He says that speaking on matters of unofficial acts or talking about matters in an unofficial capacity are insulated from immunity. So Trump's tweets leading up to January 6th, uh, his rally as well, those are electoral speeches and they're not in furtherance of any official duty. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hey, Lawfare listeners, Ben Wittes here. Want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me 
their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contains some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, the data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information, Big culprit this time is something called my life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have my life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story, that you know they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back. And then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com lawfare20 and use promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com lawfare20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. And just a quick follow-up there, Seraphine. Uh, as you noted in your piece, Judge Mehta's decision has been on appeal at the D.C. Circuit since July 2022, but during that time, DOJ has weighed in, especially on the speech on a matter of public concern piece of the argument. Could you just speak on what uh, DOJ has said 
This is really important because this is actually the first time the department has responded to Trump's presidential immunity arguments related to January 6th. And they said a few months after this this case was appealed that they said, quote, a president's speech on a matter of public concern is not protected by absolute immunity if it constitutes incitement to imminent private violence. And so we have here an instance where the Department of Justice is not taking any of Trump's arguments on immunity grounds. And so we're probably going to see similar types of arguments when John Loro submits his brief and makes the presidential immunity argument here in this case. Ben, I want to turn to you for another entity that has weighed in, uh, and that is the Office of Legal Counsel. Could you speak on a bit about what they've said about Congress's ability to criminalize the conduct of the president? Yeah, so the the OLC, the Justice Department in general, is in a very interesting position here because it is on the one hand prosecuting Trump, but on the other hand, it is also the guardian of the executive branch's prerogatives and, and particularly the president's prerogatives. And so it tends to be very protective of presidential authority when it interprets statutes. And specifically, it has a long tradition, unlike the courts, which have not considered this issue ever, of considering the question of how do you read statutes that might be said to criminalize presidential conduct. So, for example, you have an obstruction of justice statute that doesn't mention the president, and then the president turns around and fires the FBI director, to use an example, who's investigating him. Can that be an obstruction of justice, given that firing the FBI director is a power that the president has or not? So the traditional answer that the Justice Department has to this problem is uh, that it interprets statutes that purport to criminalize behavior generally, but don't reference the president specifically as generally not criminalizing presidential behavior. So the general rule, as the Justice Department has articulated it, uh, which is called the clear statement rule, is that a statute of, of general applicability that doesn't by its terms apply to the president should generally not be applied to the president unless to apply it would have no impact on a regular presidential exercise of, of his authority. Um, and so this is a, a, it's not framed as an immunity doctrine, but it functions as an immunity doctrine in a lot of instances, right? So you would say a law that doesn't specifically say it applies to the president generally doesn't if applying it could have any separation of powers implications at all. Now, this doctrine is relevant to this discussion for two reasons, uh, and it's, it's quite controversial, I might add, but the controversy actually doesn't matter to this case. And the reason is that, first of all, OLC opinions bind Jack Smith. So Jack Smith, who brought this case, he's part of the executive branch, he's bound by these OLC opinions. And that means that for him to have brought this case, he has to believe that the evidence shows and he has to be willing and able to prove that this 
conduct, that prosecuting this conduct by Donald Trump will have no separation of powers implications at all. It couldn't possibly limit reasonable presidential behavior. And that, I think, is a potential way around uh, the argument that Donald Trump is going to make. So Donald Trump is going to argue, hey, I'm absolutely immune, and therefore you can't prosecute me for this January 6th related nonsense, because to prosecute me would raise separation of powers problems. And Jack Smith is going to turn around and say, hold on, bucko. I can't prosecute you for anything that would have separation of powers implications, but prosecuting you for these acts that are wholly outside your responsibilities as president has no separation of powers implications. So it doesn't matter if there's no clear statement in these statutes that they apply to the president. That is, I think, the significance of this doctrine in this context. But again, we haven't yet seen Trump's brief, nor have we seen the Justice Department's response to it. Serafina, I was hoping you could take us down one more potential prosecutorial path, uh, and that is related to a 1974 Justice Department opinion that you referenced in the piece by then Deputy Attorney General Lawrence Silberman. Um, so can you talk about uh, the opinion and the, the, the carve out of the class of offenses that he writes about in there. So in 1974, the then, de- then Deputy Attorney General Larry Silverman didn't really get to the presidential immunity question because he argued that there are certain acts that by their very nature um, fall outside of the clear statement rule analysis. And that's because these acts are of such a nature that no matter what someone's office status might be, no matter if they're president or otherwise, they can't safely assume that by taking on these acts that they are in some way above the law. And what he was specifically referring to was the bribery statute. That was the extent of his analysis when it in, in this regard. But then in 1995, um, OLC had Walter Dellinger explain what Silverman meant, which is that the bribery statute falls outside the clear statement rule analysis uh, for several reasons. The Constitution confers no power in the president to receive bribes. And actually, on the contrary, the the Constitution makes very clear that the president can't receive more compensation for his service while he's in office, which is effectively what a bribe would do. The Constitution also expressly authorizes Congress to impeach the president for a number of acts, including bribery. And, And relatedly, actually, The Constitution also says that someone who is impeached and convicted can still be liable and subject to, quote, indictment, trial, judgment, and punishment. So that's that's Silverman and Dellinger's argument. So prosecutors could say that, like receiving bribes, the Constitution does not confer authority to the president to engage in the acts that are alleged in the indictment. And that's because these acts qualify as quote, high crimes and misdemeanors. And in the Constitution, high crimes and misdemeanors falls under the umbrella of impeachment in the same way that bribery does. And also, there are some acts that the president has been indicted for that prosecutors could say um, are reserved for other branches of government. 
And it's, it's, these are, these are two, two arguments that they can make without really getting into, getting into the presidential immunity piece. And we know that uh, Judge Mehta made a similar argument in talking about the, the separation of powers, the, the fact that some acts are reserved for another branch of government. Um, and that was specifically with the counting of the electoral college vote. What that effectively means is that if we're prosecuting Trump for his alleged interference with the certification of the electoral college vote, it would raise uh, no separation of power questions because it's just not in his wheelhouse. The constitution doesn't give him that power. That power is reserved for the uh, legislative branch. And if we're going to follow that same line of reasoning, we can also, prosecutors can also make the argument that the constitution also confers no power to the president to defraud the United States for that matter or to conspire against the voting rights of citizens. In fact, again, it specifically entrusts electoral vote counting matters to a different branch of government. So Trump's actions may not be in the Article 2 domain, but we're not getting there. Prosecutors aren't getting there. They're talking about whether the clear statement rule would apply here. And it need not matter because all of Trump's alleged actions in the indictment, prosecutors may argue, is reserved either for another branch of government or it falls squarely within this idea of high crimes and misdemeanors. And so we don't even have to reach the question of presidential immunity. Now, I'd love to put a bow on the presidential immunity argument. Ben, what's the bottom line here as you see it? What is the bar that Trump's lawyers will have to overcome to convince Judge Chutkin to dismiss this case on presidential immunity grounds? Yeah, so the bottom line is that this is a bit of a moonshot. But given Fitzgerald and given uh, the Byron White dissent in Fitzgerald, it's not a crazy moonshot. The bottom line is Trump would have to convince a court that there is an immunity at least as broad as the immunity in the civil context, number one. And number two, that Judge Mehta is wrong that this immunity does not extend into the terrain of the January 6th activity. That is that it sweeps more broadly than simply the activity that is explicitly authorized by Article 2. I think that's a long shot, but I don't think it's a crazy long shot. And the, the reason is twofold on substantively. There's one additional reason why it's, it's a good argument for Trump. The first is that, look, you've got a conservative majority on the Supreme Court that Trump may regard as friendly to uh, executive power claims in general and specifically executive power claims by him in particular. You know, whether that's right or wrong, I I don't think this argument has a, a snowball's chance in hell before Judge Chutkin. But you could imagine D.C. Circuit panels that might be more sympathetic to it. And you could imagine a Supreme Court that might be more sympathetic to it. So I don't think it has a good chance of prevailing in the Supreme Court. But remember, Trump is, you're as a lawyer for Trump here, you're, you're trying to make every argument you can that might assist your client. And these are arguments that might assist your client. Uh, the second issue, which I think substantively is more s- substantial, is that, remember, this is the state of the argument 
when no evidence has been introduced. And, you know, for right now, on a motion to dismiss, Judge Chutkin has to assume all the facts in the indictment are true. And she has to take them uh, as true. And she's not allowed to take any of Trump's counter evidence that he might put on. She's not allowed to consider that at all. But then you're going to have a trial, right? And in the trial, Trump is going to try to put on some evidence, I assume, that shows that he really did believe the election was stolen, that he had, you know, was operating on advice of counsel, that his motives were pure as the driven snow. And the question is whether any of this evidence, in light of whatever he can put on about his own state of mind, uh, looks a little bit closer to more conventional Article 2 activity. And I think if you could push it in that direction, if you could say, all right, the record of evidence that we're now allowed to consider now includes a whole bunch of people testifying that Trump was, you know, just trying to take care that the laws were faithfully executed, then does that change the picture on a post-trial motion for a directed verdict or a direct appeal, right? Would he be able to say, hey, there was a lot of record evidence that this stuff was much more conventional presidential activity than the prosecution is alleged? And so I think you could imagine the, the first round of this litigation setting up a standard of presidential immunity that then you kind of try to uh, meet in prosecuting, in, in, in prosecuting, no pun intended, the defense of the case, and that you deal with, you, you then try to meet it on appeal, on direct appeal. There is a third important aspect to this argument, and it has nothing to do with the merits of it, which is, for reasons we can go into, when Tanya Chutkin denies this motion to dismiss, assuming she does, if, if she grants it, great, from Trump's point of view, then the government will appeal it. But assuming she denies it, it is very likely appealable uh, in a way that almost nothing else she does pre-trial is going to be appealable. And so from Trump's point of view, this argument, unlike any of his other defenses, is very likely to set up an appellate battle before trial that could delay the trial by any number of uh, weeks or months. And so I think that for that reason alone, if your strategic goal in the litigation, as Trump's clearly is, is to buy yourself as much time, delay things as long as possible so that you can win the presidency and make the case go away, a issue that will set up a lengthy appellate battle that will go all the way to the Supreme Court is a very valuable thing. And I think that's probably the principle. And that's true whether it's valid, a valid argument or an invalid argument. I think that's probably the principal value, irrespective of the merits of the matter of this argument to Trump. And Ben, just to pick up on, on one thing you said there, why is it appealable before anything else she does? Okay, so generally in a criminal trial, anything that you don't like that a district court judge does gets 
punted until the end of trial. You can't, except under the most extreme circumstances, you can't uh, appeal it. You wait until you lose the case, and then it becomes part of your appeal of the case in general. There is this weird exception to this, which is involves situations in which you're basically arguing that for one reason or another, you shouldn't have to face trial at all. And so an example of this is the speech and debate clause issue. If somebody gives a speech on the floor of Congress and you drag them in front of a court uh, for some crime, let's say they had released classified information on the floor of Congress, uh, which of course is illegal, except that they have speech and debate clause immunity and they filed a motion to dismiss on that basis and the judge denied it, that order is immediately appealable. And there are a set of cases that represent this exception. And Ruth Marcus argued in the Washington Post, and I think very correctly concluded that for arcane reasons, a judgment by Tanya Chutkin that this motion should be denied would be appealable on an interlocutory basis. And so even if she's right, even if Trump would have no good argument on the merit, you'd probably have to litigate that pre-trial. And so I think the significance of that is that it does create the possibility of delay that I think will be very valuable for Trump. The article is called The Trump Defense Part 2, The Presidential Immunity Gambit, and you can find it on Lawfare. Ben and Seraphine, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thanks for having us. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can add free versions of this and other Lawfare Podcasts by becoming a Lawfare material supporter through our website, lawfaremedia.org support. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Look out for our other shows, including Rational Security, Chatter, Allies, and The Aftermath, our latest Lawfare Presents podcast series on the government's response to January 6th. Check out our written work at lawfaremedia.org. The podcast is edited by Jen Patia Howell, and your audio engineer this episode was Ian Enright of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thanks for listening. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.